Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Well, good morning, Southwest. How are we? It's great to see you this morning. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, but as he writes to the church, he, he tells them that he brags about them to other churches. And I just want you guys to know that I brag about you guys to everyone who asks, hey, how's Anchor Southwest going? And my constant reply is these guys have been faithful and God is doing a good thing here at Anchor Southwest. So it is such an encouragement to be here. Greetings from your brothers and sisters at Anchor City. Um, we are really looking forward to being together as one church family on the 25th of June. So do not miss that. I also just want to um, honour Arnaldo and Kath. Um, there's been a big season uh, of both ministry and family for you guys. And just watching from afar, I admire your leadership, brother. I th- I'm just so thankful for the way that you've led this church and your faithfulness in serving these people. So well done. Such a, such a privilege to be standing behind Arnaldo's pulpit and um, somewhat scary to be honest with you because you're part, I don't know how blessed you guys realize you are because your pastor can preach. Well we are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. Arnaldo gave me a passage. He actually gave me 13 passages, 13 chapters from 1 Samuel and said here you go cover all of this in a 35 minute sermon. So um, hey I need help. Let's pray together as we sit humbly under God's word. Father we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And this morning as we sit under your word, we pray that you would still our hearts, attune our ears to what you want to say to us this morning. And and I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help transform us and shape us and make us the type of people that you call us to be. God, I pray that this word would be relevant for every person in this room because you are the God who speaks. And I pray this now in his strong name and God's people said... Amen. Amen. Well, there's been a recent um, research paper that was done amongst the corporate world um, that was focusing on the issue of integrity. And they asked all of these employees who worked in the corporate workspace how much they valued the, the character of integrity in their company and in the people that they worked with. And almost unanimously, everyone said, integrity is really important for us. Like 95% of people said, yes, I value integrity. I value integrity in my colleagues and I value the integrity of this company. I don't know what the other 5% were thinking. Maybe they couldn't read the question properly. Or, but 5% of people said they didn't value it. The, the big difference came when they were presented with a bunch of ethical challenges, ethical tests that were faced by companies and individuals who worked in this corporate sector. And a number of them answered that question very differently. There was a significant gap between people's desire for integrity and their practice of integrity, or at least the practice of integrity in a group setting. And this morning, we are going to look at this passage that Alnado read for us. It's a, really a lesson of integrity in the life of David. But before we get to chapter 24, there is a lot that's happened between young David who used five stones to kill Goliath and what is happening here in chapter 24. So let me just 
as Alnada has been doing, give you the story so far up to this point. So Saul, as you remember, is the Lord's anointed king. Samuel, the prophet, has come. He has anointed Saul, the chosen king of God's people, and yet Saul did not walk with integrity before the Lord. He disobeyed God. He, the Lord sent him into battle to destroy the Amalekites, and Saul did not do that. He did not walk in obedience. And so God rejects Saul as king. And last week we saw this young new hero, this new champion begin to emerge in the shadows of Saul's disobedience. And he is David, the giant killer, the one who walked by faith and stepped out and destroyed Israel's enemy in the Philistines, particularly in the face of Goliath, the giant. And As the narrative unfolds, we see David here walking in success. He's blessed as a leader, particularly in the sense of his military conquest. God blesses him. He becomes influential. In fact, God's people have this little ditty, this little song that they sing. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. The people admire David. They love him. And Saul in his insecurity becomes jealous and he Schemes, plots, plans to kill David. But the problem is David's quite embedded with Saul's family because David has become best friends with David's son, Jonathan. They're close friends, deep, intimate friends, as well as he's married one of Saul's daughters, Michal. And so David is very much embedded in Saul's family, but Saul is threatened. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see this exchange between Jonathan and David where it becomes very clear that Saul intends to murder David and get rid of him. And so Jonathan makes a pact with David, a covenant with David, and sends David into exile, into the wilderness. And we pick up our story here in 1 Samuel chapter 23, 24, 25, and maybe a bit of 26. And what I want us to pay attention to here is not just what is happening, but where it is happening, the location, the environment of these events. Because what is happening here as David flees the murderous threats of Saul, he finds himself in a very familiar place, at least to God's people. And that place is the wilderness. He is on the run. He is running for his life, living in caves, hiding out in the wilderness. Even at times in the Philistine outposts, he will spend some time there. But David's almost all of this encounter here in these four or so chapters happen in the wilderness. And this physical wilderness experience is actually mirrored by David's spiritual experience. This is a metaphor for his life because David is the one David is the one of whom Samuel came in chapter 7 and did exactly what he did for Saul. He anoints David with oil and says, Yahweh has chosen you to be the Mashiach, the Messiah, the King. And so David is living in the gap between the promises of God and their fulfillment. He's living in this wilderness experience between what he knows to be true of his future and this current experience of running for his life, living in caves. And David must be asking the question, God, what are you doing? I thought you made a promise. Like, I'm going to be king. You anointed me like the whole Samuel thing. What, What has happened to that moment? Because right now I'm running for my life. I'm in mortal danger. The king is pursuing me with thousands of his best soldiers. What is happening? This is not David's planned script for his life. 
He's running. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament professor, has this brilliant line. He says this. He says, new rulers live in dread of old ones defeated. New rulers live in dread of old ones defeated. And what he means by that is as a new ruler begins to step into leadership, their biggest problem, the biggest thorn in their flesh is always their predecessor. And it kind of reminds me of a 2009 Liberal Party spill that happened. If, if for those of you who remember, it played out in front of our uh, social media feeds and television, television stations. We had Malcolm Turnbull, who was seeking to be ousted from the Liberal Party by his predecessor, Tony Abbott, who sat in the wings on the backbench causing problems for Malcolm Turnbull. And just before that vote happened, the vote that ended up ending Turnbull's term as the Prime Minister of Australia, he was asked by the media, if you lose the vote, will you stay in politics? And he said this very stinging, scathing line to the media. He said, I have made it very clear that I believe the former Prime Ministers are best out of Parliament. And he was like, oh man, you could just sense the tension there that was happening. The thorn in Turnbull's flesh was the old leader that had been left behind. And so typically what you do, and particularly in the ancient Near East when it came to the monarchy, you would eradicate your predecessor. In fact, you would eradicate the memory of their entire family. And so as David begins to step into leadership, as he realizes the anointing of the Lord on his life and the call to be Israel's Messiah, he is faced with a choice of what he will do with Saul. And so in the wilderness, David will face three tests, three tests. In fact, three times Saul will pursue David in attempt to take his life. But in the wilderness, David faces three profound tests. The first test is the test that we just read of here in chapter 24, the test of the cave. The second test happens in chapter 25 as David and his men are camped out in the fields and they happen to be camped by the estate of a very wealthy man named Nabal. And he has shepherds who are looking after his sheep and David and his men have treated his shepherds and his servants with kindness. They've protected them. They've looked after them. And at a particular feast, David asks of Nabal, would you show me hospitality and provide me some food? And Nabal shuns David. Who is this David? Who is this person who has broken away from his leader? And David decides that he is going to go with his best men and slaughter every male in the household of Nabal. And his wife Abigail comes out and offers an atonement, a sacrifice to appease David's wrath. That is his second test. And the third test is very similar to the first test that he will face. Saul, a third time, is trying to take David's life. He's camped out with his men and David sneaks in to the camp. In fact, he sneaks into Saul's tent and takes Saul's water jug and his spear and then he sneaks back out and he calls out to Saul's uh, guard and he says to them, you have failed to protect the Lord's anointed. And it's a very, very similar story. Almost repeats what we've heard here in chapter 24. But we have here three tests that David faces in the wilderness. And we're going to focus on test number one, the story of the cave. So come back, chapter 24, verse 2. Saul is pursuing David and it says this in verse 2. So Saul took three thousand 
able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were in the back, uh, were far back in the cave. The men said, David, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept unnoticed to cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now this moment is a, this is a holy coincidence or a divine fluke or, you know, the technical theological term for it is divine providence, right? Here are David's men. They're hiding from Saul. They're in a very large, deep cave. And it just so happens that the very, of all the caves in En Gedi, this this place where Saul is pursuing David, it is known to this day to be a place that is full of caves, of all of the caves that Saul chooses to relieve himself in. It just so happens to be the very one that David and his men are camped out in. And David's men interpret this moment as God serving Saul up on a platter for David to do with him as he wishes. Now, the Hebrew here, if you, um, if you read it in the original language, it actually says that David has retreated into this cave to cover his feet. That's a bit of a euphemism for he's looking for some privacy. And so Saul has likely come in to spend some time, as Ozzy say, sitting on the throne. And he's likely taken off his armor, his robe, laid down his weapons to relieve himself. And in that moment, David, like a stealthy ninja he is, has snuck up and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, we might think, well, clever. You know, it's a, it's a nice little piece of evidence that David can use to confront Saul with a bit later on. But there is actually rich symbolism that is connected to this act that David has done. Because here, this, this robe and the cutting off of the corner of the robe represents so much more than simply evidence for David to show Saul that he has not attacked him. David could quite easily have just taken Saul's weapons. In fact, he could quite easily have just, you know, confronted Saul right there. He was outnumbered. All of his men were behind him. So what is David doing when he comes up and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe? Well, if you remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, as Saul comes to David and says to him, Sorry, as Samuel, there's so many names in there. As Samuel comes to Saul and says to him, because of your disobedience, the Lord is taking away the kingdom from you and he will give it to another. And what does Saul do in that moment? He clings to Samuel's robe as he leaves and tears the corner of the robe off. And Samuel says to Saul, this is a prophetic sign. It's a prophetic sign of what is going to happen to you because your kingdom will be taken from you and given to another. And so as David comes and chops the corner of Saul's robe off, he's effectively saying, I am taking the kingdom from you. I'm ta- what, what Samuel prophesied, what Samuel said will happen to you and what has prophetically happened as you tore the corner of his robe, I am doing to you now. And so David cuts off the corner of his robe and says to Saul symbolically, I am taking the kingdom. But then David has a moment of conscience and guilt strikes him. Have a look at what it says in verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, 
the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Whether we like it or not, whether David likes it or not, whether his men like it or not, Saul remains God's anointed king, his chosen one. And that word anointed means that he has been set apart, that he is consecrated, much like the priest, that he is God's vessel. Now, just so you know, like, I don't think a, a pastor in the 21st century can claim that language for themselves. You know, the, you might hear, you know, if another ever says, do not lay a hand on the anointed, you know it's time to run. You know, like, leave the, get out of here, right? The anointed of the Lord here is the Messiah, the one that God has chosen. We have a Messiah. We will hear about him in a second. His name is Jesus. But here, David has respect for the office of Israel's Mashiach, the Messiah, the promised one. Saul is the anointed. And David treats him that way. He will not give in to the pressure of his men. In fact, uh, there's a little play on words there when, when it says that David rebuked sharply his soldiers. It actually says he tore into them. He tore them apart. Very profound language to describe David's protection of Saul. Now, as we consider the two messiahs, the current messiah and the future messiah of Israel, you can't help but see a contrast between the character of these men. Because if you go back a few chapters to consider how Saul, as he pursued David, one of the encounters that happens there in 1 Samuel chapter 22 is Saul is pursuing David and David, David has gone to this place called Nob and the priests there have ministered to David, cared for David, have prayed for him. And as Saul comes, he finds out what the priests at Nob have done. And so he instructs the soldiers that are standing to his side to take their swords out and strike down all of the priests of this village. And his men refused to do it. But there was one guy, the guy who told on David and ran and dibbedobbed to Saul and said, hey, guess what? David has run to the place called Nob and he calls him and he strikes down all of the priests. Now, we've got to remember, the priests who ministered in the temple were anointed. of the, They were consecrated, servants of God. So here is Saul slaughtering the priests and David when opportunity provides him treating the Lord's anointed with honor, dignity, and respect. So unlike Saul. And so David lets this opportunity to kill Saul slide through his hands. You've got to put yourself in his shoes for a second. He could have spared himself the running, the constant looking over his shoulder to figure out who was pursuing him, the life in the caves, life in the wilderness, the fear that pursued him constantly. He, he could have spared himself all of that. He could have bypassed the discomfort of the wilderness for the luxury of the palace. He, he could have taken a shortcut to a future that he knew was going to be his one day. But this in the wilderness is a test of integrity. And in this instance, at least, at least the three incidences that we will cover here David passes the test. Now, we know he is not perfect, as we will see in the weeks to come. But here, he acts with integrity. 
as he is faced with the choice between a shortcut to the throne that would mean blood on his hands or patiently waiting for God's plan to unfold. David says that I will do God's will, God's way. I will do God's will, God's way. And I will not take the throne with blood on my hands. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a similar circumstance where you're faced with a a test, a trial, a shortcut. Maybe, um, Maybe it's just a simple light one, like you find a wallet with a few hundred bucks in it. And you know you need to turn the wallet in. There's credit cards, licenses. And it would be wrong of you to force that person to cancel their cards and get a new license. But who's going to know if the few hundred dollars that are in there just happen not to be there and you turn into the police station. It was empty when I found it, officer. Or perhaps you find out about a test and what that test is going to be in, but the means of finding out that information has not been righteous and holy. Perhaps you're faced with some form of a test. How do we walk with integrity in those moments? I remember a number of years ago, uh, a young guy was at our church. He was working for a, a very large company that contracted out to the government and his boss often forced his employees to lie for the sake of financial gain. And this guy was sharing in our small group one night that he had been faced with a situation where his boss had explicitly asked him to lie to one of their contractors and he refused to do it. In fact, his boss would go on to do this multiple times in the years to come. And every time he was faced with a challenge, he refused to lie. And his boss held it against him. In fact, his boss overlooked him for multiple promotions in that company over many years. He kept being overlooked. It was very clear that it was punishment for his unwillingness to lie when the boss had asked him to lie. Fast forward a few years later, and there was a moment between the two senior partners of this company that had caused a very significant rift in the company. No one trusted anyone other than my friend because his boss knew in this moment that when all of the other people in the company had lied cheated in order to get ahead, this guy refused to do it. And he was the one person in this massive blow up in this company whom he could trust. Because when he was faced with an opportunity to take a shortcut, he chose rather to walk in integrity. I wonder if you face, find yourself facing a similar trial, a similar test in your walk, perhaps a test of integrity in business, personal finances or career, Maybe even a boss who wants you to lie. Perhaps it's a test in relationships. Will you choose to walk in integrity in a relationship? Will you choose to speak honorably about someone in your family despite the fact that they continue to destroy your reputation behind your back? Will you choose to walk in integrity in your studies? Choosing not to use ChatGP to write your essay for you and then submit it in. Here is David, the future king of Israel, in a profound moment of moral compromise and test, who has chosen to walk in front of the Lord and in front of his men with integrity and character and righteousness. You know, as we 
read our way through the entire story of God, what we find over and over and over again is the metaphor and motif of the wilderness pops up constantly. It's a loaded motif in God's story. Abraham, our our forefather, was the one who was called, the one who wandered in the wilderness as he was called to leave his family and his place and go to the land that the Lord would promise, Abraham wandered in the wilderness and in that time faced multiple tests of faith and character. Moses fled into the wilderness and there in the wilderness encountered Yahweh at the burning bush. Israel, God's very people, would spend 40 years wandering through the wilderness. And many years later, David's great-great-grandson, Jesus, another Mashiach, Messiah, who would come, also found himself in the wilderness. And he faced, faced three tests there in the wilderness. Tests that the devil would come and tempt him, representing a shortcut to the throne, just like David. An easy path, an easy way. Here in in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, it says this. Again, this is the third test that Jesus faces. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And whispers in Jesus' ear, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. What would Jesus do in that moment? Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This test represents a shortcut for Jesus. A shortcut to what he knew lay before him. Just like David, Jesus knew that the throne had been promised him. The Father said, Every knee will bow before you, King Jesus. And yet he is faced with a test, a trial, a temptation. He could very easily have chosen the easy path, and yet Jesus knows that this is not the way, that he knows that the crown will come, but it comes via a crown of thorns. He knows that the throne would come, but it comes via the coronation of Golgotha. He knows that glory will come, but it comes via the path of suffering. You see, the devil's test is to offer Jesus the very thing that the Father had promised, glory. But to offer it minus the pain, bypassing the scourging, bypassing the nails, bypassing the Roman cross. This is a shortcut through Gethsemane to the glory that the Father had promised. But it would come at a cost. And the cost would be disobedience to the Father. Here is our Messiah, our King, who walked faithfully before the Lord. And every other test that Jesus would face, he continued to do the same. If you find yourself in a season of wilderness, a season of waiting for God to do something that you know is so clearly in his will. Like this is not a prayer that you're praying for. You think, I don't know if God wants to do you. This is a yes thing that, that God says to, right? And, and yet it hasn't happened. You find yourself waiting in that gap between the promises of God and your present circumstance and moment. How do we live in those moments, in those desert wilderness seasons that we find ourselves in? 
And my promise to you is that if you will let God, he will use those moments to shape us, to form character in us. Because that's what I think is happening here for Saul, for, for David, sorry. The wilderness stories are a test of his character as he comes to the throne. What type of Messiah will David be? Will he be a Messiah like Saul or will he be a man after God's own heart? God often uses wilderness moments to form and shape our character. Marlena Graves, a author in the realm of spiritual formation, says this. She says, God uses the desert of the soul, our suffering, our difficulties, our pain, our dark nights, call them what you will, our wilderness seasons. God uses them to form us and to make us beautiful souls. He redeems what we might deem our living hells if we would allow him. The hard truth then is this. Everyone who follows Jesus is eventually called into the desert because it's there that God is forming us, shaping us, making us the type of people whom he wants us to be, the type of people who can walk through the current wilderness of this secular age with integrity and a counter-cultural character to the world around us. We need a version of spirituality that prepares us for what it looks like to follow Jesus in the 21st century because we live between God's promise of home and its culmination. Right, we live in a wilderness season between the first arrival of Jesus and his second coming. Between the, the freedom of captivity and the promised land. And Christian spirituality is about learning the habit of resistance. You see, this is not the first time that David has chosen to walk with integrity. There are countless opportunities that David had, right? In fact, he faced multiple tests in the palace. Saul tempting David, Saul trying to offer David his daughters. And David continues to walk with integrity. You see, it's not just grit and willpower that got David through that moment in the cave. No, David had learned what it meant to resist temptation to resist the test that came his way so that in the moment he'd figured out how to act with integrity in that moment. He honours the king, not out of willpower, but out of a life that had developed a habit of integrity. He'd practised resistance in the palace so that when he found himself in the cave, he was able to walk in obedience. You see, we live in a world that realistically says to most of us, get ahead by any means. White lie, that's okay. Trampling over people to climb the career ladder, that's okay. It's a, cut, it's a cutthroat world. Get ahead or get left behind, that is how it operates. And we are called to be a people who are vastly different. And if we're to be people who are to walk in integrity in the big moments of life, we need to practice that in the small moments. Now, I remember hearing a story of Nelson Mandela, um, South Africa's greatest ever prime minister. 
If you know Nelson Mandela's story, he was a political prisoner for many years, treated poorly. And there was a story that emerged of uh, Mandela's life from one of his closest assistants who traveled extensively with him. And they tell a story of the fact that Nelson Mandela made his bed every day, wherever he was, he made his own bed. It didn't matter if, if he was traveling and staying in a fancy hotel, he would still, in the hotels, make his own bed. And there's a story that he tells of one time where he's traveling in China at a very, very fancy hotel, and they were faced with this conundrum because as a, a part of the, the culture of where he was traveling was that the ladies who came to make the rooms were supposed to make the bed, and it was almost an offense if you made the bed for them. And so Mandela was faced with this, what would he do in that moment? So he said to his assistant, I want you to call the hotel and tell them to bring all of the ladies who are going to take care of my room up because I want to speak to them. So they did, called him in, and he explained to them that he was going to be making his own bed and that he didn't want them to make his bed and that it wasn't a cultural offense. Now, that moment that he was presented with there, he's only able to do that. He's, he's only able to stand on the global political stage and act with integrity because every single day in the small moments, in the moments where no one saw him, he chose to do things that fostered and formed the type of character in him that would help him when he faced a challenge on the political stage, when he was called upon to turn a country away from a history of racism people knew that they could follow a man with integrity because he had walked in that in the small, silent moments of his everyday life. We are called to be a radically countercultural people, a people who would follow after our Messiah, Jesus. And the path to glory that lies ahead of us is the same path that Jesus walked. It is the path to the cross. It is suffering first, glory later. In a moment, we're going to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross in our weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. Two stations to my right and left are symbols that represent the body and blood of Christ. His body was broken, his blood that was poured out for our forgiveness. And so in the next couple of sets of worship, the next few songs of worship, I invite those of you who love Jesus, who follow him, to come forward, to take the bread, eat it, to drink the grape juice, remembering that His body and blood was poured out for our forgiveness, that we have a Messiah who chose to walk to the cross in obedience to His Father. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You that we have a Messiah in Jesus who has gone all the way to the cross, a Messiah who went there with perfect obedience, that He stands in our place offering to us His perfect righteousness, taking upon Himself our sin, our failures, to present us to You blameless, spotless, without blemish. Father, I pray that You would help us to be a radically countercultural people, a people who would walk before You with integrity, and not just in the moments that are seen, but in the silent moments where no one will see us pray that you would shape us and form us by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. God's people said, Amen.